Today's scripture reading will be from 1 John chapter 5, verses 18 to 21. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Last message in First John. As we come to the end of this letter, we find John giving us some very basic certainties that we can hold on to firmly. I mean, that's the, his intent throughout this letter. And he's doing this based on what he's already written, kind of a summary or a conclusion to his letter. That's why he used the phrase, we know, 39 times in this letter. We know, we know, we know. Get it through your heads. We know. God wants us to live in certainty of our salvation. So throughout this epistle, he has given us doctrinal tests, and I'm not going to re-go over those again. He's given us ethical tests or moral tests to determine the genuineness of anyone's salvation so that, the, so that if we pass those tests, we know, without a doubt, and when we know, as he said in chapter 1, verse 4, then our joy will be made complete. It will be full. Last week, we looked at the first two certainties that John has in his, um, in his conclusion here. Number one, we know we have eternal life. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That the Lord wants us to be certain about that. Secondly, we know we have our prayers answered. The next couple of verses, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of Him. Certainty. Then John gives us three more certainties as he closes off his letter. So we know we have eternal life. We know God answers prayers. And third, we know we have victory over sin. Verse 18, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. Are any of us born of God then? The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. Again, John is reviewing what he's already talked about. He's already hit on this subject. We've dealt a lot with this subject, but he's saying that no one who has been born again, no one who has been given this new nature, no one who has been transformed, regenerated, goes on in the same unbroken pattern of sin. Those who have not had this, experiences, uh, this experience have, are spiritually dead. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.1, right? In their trespasses and sin. They walk according to the pattern of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience. 
They walk in the lusts of their flesh, indulging the desires of their flesh and of the mind, and are by nature children of wrath, just as we used to be. There is nothing good in them. This is not my opinion, folks. This is Scripture. In God's eyes, they can't do anything good for the purposes of eternity because they're of their father, the devil. Scripture is very clear, very black and white about this. No, not one of them is profitable. Not one of them is righteous. Not even run, Romans 3 says. They are the servants of unrighteousness. Their lives are marked by sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Hebrew word for sin is pasha. It means rebellion. They are in constant rebellion against the law and the love and the lordship of God. By nature, therefore, they are children of wrath, headed for wrath. That description, that's a harsh description. That description should be very sobering for us who are saved, who are no longer under the wrath. And give us a greater desire to reach them for Christ. People are slaves to sin and slaves to Satan until they are born of God. And we have the answer. We have the answer to their freedom. And we know, according to verse 18, that anyone born of God does not continue to sin, does not continue in the pattern of unbroken sin. Once again, John is coming back to point to the fact that it's pretty simple to tell if someone's a true believer. You look at their life, and if there is in their life a constant pattern of sin, virtually unbroken, you can be pretty sure that that slavery to sin has not yet been eliminated. The one born of God does not continue in that same pattern. Why is that? Because, number one, Sin is incompatible with the law of God. Sin is incompatible with the law of God. That's what he told us in chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who sins, again, repeating this, talking about that constant unbroken pattern, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. A true believer does not, cannot habitually live in violation of God's law. Sin is incompatible with the law of God. Secondly, sin is incompatible with the work of Christ because we know that he came to take away the sins of the world. I mean, Jesus came, died, rose again, for goodness sake, to take away sin. So if, if he's done his work in the heart of a person, then the power of sin is taken away. In fact, he says in chapter 3, verse 6, no one who lives in Christ keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Again, he's not saying that we never sin. He's talking about here about that constant pattern. Do we mess up sometimes? Sure. But God's provided a solution for that as well. We saw in chapter 2, verse 1, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin... If the pattern of righteousness which is now established by that new birth is broken by sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We, it's the question, why do we need an advocate before the Father? Because there is an evil, underhanded, lying accuser. 
in Satan himself, who is constantly accusing us before the Father. But our advocate wins every time because he's the one who gave his life as a sacrifice for us. And it was sufficient. In fact, it was completely sufficient. So it isn't perfection that we're talking about here. It's direction. It's not the complete absence of sin. We've still got this this, uh, body of ours, these desires of ours that that, uh, we're trying to continually improve and have victory over. But it's that pattern of righteousness that re- that replaces the broken pattern of unbroken pattern of sin. So there's a replacement there. First John three five says, "But but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins." That's the work of Christ. It's why he appeared. The reason the Son of God appeared, John says in verse eight, there the same chapter was to destroy the devil's work. That also was a work of Christ. We have victory over sin because of what Christ did for us on the cross. He's taken away our sins and he's destroyed the devil's work. Therefore, sin is incompatible with the work of Christ. And then thirdly, sin is incompatible with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 1 John 3.9 says, no one who is born of God. Now listen carefully, it's the Spirit who gives us a new birth, right? Right? We're we're born of the Spirit, and no one born of God's Spirit, John says, will continue to sin. Why? Because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child. It's really that simple. You know, this is one of the strongest verses in the Bible, and there are many, that speaks to the fact that we don't have to sin every day in thought, word, and deed. That concept is inconsistent and incompatible with the law of God, with the work of Christ, and with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I mentioned a while back, a number of weeks, that that concept actually came from a corporate confessional prayer from the Anglican Church. Merciful God, they pray, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. It sounds very pious, but according to John that we've been studying, that's not a prayer for the believer. That's a sinner's prayer, an unbeliever's prayer. In fact, that whole, whole prayer is completely contradictory to what John is, has been teaching us here in this letter. There is no victory in that prayer. John is saying that we, if we are actually born of God, we love God, we obey Him, we love our neighbors, we love, our, uh, we love God and are obedient to Him. The only time those words are put together in Scripture is in Colossians 3.17, where it says, And whatever you do, whether word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and Father through Him. Why are we giving thanks? Because He's given us the power to do that, to live in that way. If we can't help sinning, we've got a problem. If we continue to sin every day in thought, word, and deed, Christ's sacrifice on the cross and His victory was insufficient. The Holy Spirit is not strong enough because obviously we can't help sinning. We just keep doing it. 
But that's not what the Bible I read here tells us. 1 John 3, 9, no one who is born of God will continue in sin because God's seed, the Holy Spirit, remains in them. They cannot go on sinning in this pattern, John says, because they have been born of God. In the new life, the righteous seed of life lives in us. We cannot go on in a pattern of sin with no victory because we are born of God. This is so important for us because we're dealing with certainties here. We need to be certain about our spiritual condition. The question is not about something we did in the past. Did did you pray the prayer? Did you walk the aisle? Did you raise your hand? Did you do this? Did you do that? The question that John is putting to us is look at your life now. What's the pattern? What's the pattern? If you've been truly converted, transformed, changed, been born again, whatever term floats your boat, I guess is the phrase, (laughs) whatever is meaningful to you, the power of sin has been broken. Remember, God provides a way out. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. You don't have to sin, but when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Is God lying? I think not. Is His way out to escape temptation not good enough? Is the power of the Holy Spirit living in us not strong enough so that we can endure the temptation and not fall for it? We need to think through our theology, what we truly believe about Scripture, what we truly believe about God, about Christ, about the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul is also very strong on this, Romans chapter 6. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, that's a perfect way to define it. We had one master, one dominant master, and all we ever did was precisely what that master dictated. We were slaves to sin. But thanks be to God, Paul says, that you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin, free from sin's dominion, free from sin's mastery, and we have become slaves to righteousness. In verse 19, Paul says, you know, I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Trying to explain this, Paul's trying to use a human analogy here about slavery to describe what's happened to us spiritually in Christ. Just as you used to offer yourselves, he says, as slaves to impurity because of that sinful nature, because we were enslaved to sin and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When we were slaves to sin, there was no righteousness there. Because we had no choice but to obey sin. And all you got out of that, Paul says in verse 21, was death. That's where it all led. But, in verse 22, he says, Now that you have been set free from sin, did you catch, did you catch the, the actual words there? He didn't say, now that you've been free, set free from the consequences of sin, or the results of sin, or the wages of sin, all of which are true, But better than that, you have been set free from sin itself. From having to sin and having and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. No longer leads to death, it leads to holiness. That's what our life ought to be looking like. A life of holiness, not a life of 
sin every day. And the result, he says, is eternal life. That's what Christ has provided. Paul uses another analogy as he tries to clarify what he's saying about this topic in chapter 7. He talks about a married woman uh, who is bound by law to her husband while he's living, but if the husband dies, she's, uh, she's released from the law concerning her husband. She's released from the legal obligation to him, no longer bound to the spouse who died. She's now free to marry someone else and join someone else. And then he applies that analogy in verse 4 to us spiritually. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. It's as if your old spouse, sin, died. And your new spouse is righteousness in Christ. Verse 5 then goes on to say, For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that, that we bore fruit for death. But now, he says, by, doing, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law. That's victory in Christ. So that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. Again, the analogy is very clear here. Paul is very clear. We have new life characterized by slavery to righteousness now. That's actually a good thing. I know the concept of slavery is horrible, but we're slaves to righteousness, not obedience to the law. Satan no longer has a hold on us. Sin no longer is our master. So with all that, that thought, let's go back to 1 John chapter 5. Back to verse 18 here. We know that anyone born of God does not continue in, or continue to sin in the sense of that continual pattern of sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. Let me amplify that verse a little bit to clarify that. We know that anyone, that's you and I, born of God does not continue to sin in a continual pattern of sin. The one who was born of God, who is that? That's Jesus, the only begotten, John 3.16, keeps them safe. And the evil one cannot harm them. The evil one cannot harm us. The word translated harm here is a word in Greek that means to fasten oneself to, to adhere to, to cling to. You know, of all of God's created creatures, the one that sketches me out the most are leeches. We had to be, care of leeches, be careful of leeches when we went hiking in India through the mountains. There was a place, there's a hike people would go to. I never went. Hike, it was termed leech shola. Apparently, you walk through this shola, woods and everything, and on the other end, you've got to open up, you've got to undo your sneakers and shoelaces because leeches would just, you have no idea they're attaching themselves, and they attach to you, and they start sucking your blood. Horrible creatures. Folks, Jesus Christ keeps us safe from the evil one by not allowing him to fasten himself to us. He has no grip on us. He has no hold on us. He is no longer in control of us. Because even though he is temporarily the prince of the world, folks, he's no longer our prince. We have a king, King Jesus and He rules our hearts, and He has the power and authority to keep us. 
The one who was born of God, John says, keeps us safe. Do we really believe that? We've got to. He keeps us from ever falling back into sin's dominion, ever falling back into sin's, uh, Satan's kingdom. Can't happen. Well, there are times when he allows Satan to try to do his thing in us, but there's always a purpose. You remember he allows Satan to work on Peter in Luke chapter 22 to sift Peter. Then in verse 32, Jesus says, But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. That's Jesus keeping him safe. And when, not if, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. He actually sent a messenger from Satan to Paul, which Paul referred to as as a thorn in his flesh. And he knew that in the midst of all that, Paul would be humbled. Now, it was probably a good thing for Paul to be humbled as he served Christ, as he preached Christ, and that he would find spiritual power in his own weakness. God's given to the Son those who believe us. The Son receives them, and the Son keeps them. Isn't that cool? John 6.37 says the same thing. All those the Father gives me will come to me. We sang about that just a moment ago. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. That's why Jude says in that short letter in verse 24, which, which is often used as a doxology, now to him who is able to keep you. That's what John says. The one who was born of God keeps them safe. He is the one committed to keeping us safe, so we know that no one who is born of God by the Holy Spirit will fall back into that pattern of sin. There's so many passages that confirms this for us. Hebrews 6.19, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. No power of evil can break that chain that anchors our soul to Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 24, the one who calls you is what? Faithful. And he will do it. If he has called you in the beginning, you'll be there at the end. It's just that simple. 2 Timothy 4, 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Is that an amazing promise upon which we can be confident? The Lord will deliver us from every evil deed and bring us safely to His glorious heaven. Isn't that what we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom. King Jesus, right? He delivers us. He keeps us safe. Romans 5.10 puts an exclamation mark on it. For if, while we were God's enemies, we read this passage for the communion this morning, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled when we accepted Jesus Christ, shall we be saved through His life? Shall He keep us safe all through our relationship with, with Him? Excuse me. So, of this, we're certain. We're certain about eternal life, we're certain about answered prayer, and we are certain that we have victory over sin. Fourthly, we know we are certain that we belong to God. And this is kind of saying the same thing in a different way. Verse 19, we know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. That There are two realms, there are only two realms. 
There's a world controlled by Satan, and there are the people of God. We belong to God. He bought us with a price. We celebrated that this morning. It was a hefty price. The rest of the world belongs to Satan. He says the whole world is under the control of the evil one. The word that's translated here, under the control of, is a word used of an infant incapable of doing anything, laying in the arms of their parent. The parent is in full control, not in a bad or evil way. It's just the way it is as we hold a little infant's. But John uses that same concept metaphorically. The world lies in the lap, if you will, of the evil one. Like a baby cradled asleep in the arms of Satan. They lay in the power of, are held in subjection by the evil one. They are under his control. That's what John is getting across to us. And by the world, he means a whole human system. There's nothing in it. There's nothing about it that is not under Satan's control. He is the prince of the, and the power of this world. It's economics, it's politics, it's religions, plural. It's education, entertainment, athletic, everything is under his control, except the church, that's Christ. There are elements of the world that we can enjoy because of God's creation and in which we, are, uh, we can see the image of God and we can see His creative glory manifest in the world. But the system that functions within His creation is a system that is completely contaminated. We are in the world but not of the world any longer. John is painting a very dramatic picture for us. We're not in the embrace of Satan any longer, but we're in the embrace of God. Two distinct realms, and only two. The whole, whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's why John told us in chapter 2, starting in verse 15, do not love the world or anything in the world. Don't allow that to become a priority in, in your life. Don't allow things of the world to be a priority in life. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. It's another way of saying that we can be certain that we belong to God, that we are in His arms. So we have eternal life, we have divine access to the throne of God in prayer, we have victory over sin, we belong to God, and the final thought from John, we know that Christ is the true God. Verse 20, we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true by being in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And John kind of ends where he began in his letter. The first three verses of chapter 1, John was saying, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we, look, um, we, we have seen it, and we testify to it, we proclaim to you what? The eternal life, Jesus Christ, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have been seen and heard so that what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John said, we saw God the Father manifest in the Son. That's where he begins and that's where he's ending here. That's the first and greatest certainty that makes all the other certainties possible. 
Without that, nothing else matters. We can be certain that we are in Him who is true by being in the Son, Jesus Christ. He is a true God, and He is eternal life. So we know that Christ is the true God. Then John throws just a final warning in. Last phrase, verse 21, seems somewhat off-topic. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. What he's saying here, focus on the certainties. Focus on the certainties. Don't get enticed. Remember, the, the, the people that John was writing to were, were being drawn away by the false, uh, false teachers. Don't get enticed by any, any other supposed God or philosophy or, or thought patterns of this world. Don't get caught up in the wokeism of this world, the so-called truths that are absolutely contrary to God's Word. Don't allow your faith to be theoretical. Our faith is based on the unshakable reality that the Son of God has come. He was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary death, rose literally from the grave, ascended to the right hand of the Father, is interceding for us, and someday will come again. There is no salvation apart from Christ and Christ alone. Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And back to chapter 4 there of 1 John, verse 15. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in him. Yes, that's exclusivity, but it's available to all. Whoever believes that Jesus is a Christ, whoever, Right? Believes that Jesus is a Christ, is born of God. There isn't any other way to be born of God except to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So for those of us who have passed the doctrinal test and believe the truth of Christ and whose lives demonstrate that there has been a transformation because our lives are now characterized by obedience to the Word of God and love for others, we can be certain that we have eternal life we can be certain that we have our prayers answered. We've got the certainty of victory over sin, certainty that we belong to Him forever, all based on the certainty that Jesus Christ alone is the true God and source of eternal life. Amazing truths. Amazing certainties. You know, going through this study of 1 John has been important to me personally. Not just understanding the certainties of my salvation. That, I haven't doubted that a long time. I've, I've been absolutely certain about that. But being reminded of all the certainties in Scripture upon which I can, I can and I must stand. As my wife and I look to the future, we're all of a sudden looking into a lot of uncertainties. Things are not as we had planned. It's not how, working out exactly how it's supposed to be. Best laid plans of mice and men, right? What we thought we were certain about in our next phase of life is not all that certain anymore as to how it's all going to work out. But that's okay. But I've had to go back over and over again 
to the certainties of God about my certainties or in, in my life with Him and in Him. I've had to force myself to not listen to doubts, not listen or not be worried about uncertainties that have arisen that were not expected. How did I do that? I went to Romans chapter 12, verse 2. I love that verse. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I had to willingly get my mind back on track, back focused on Christ and on His Word. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. It's going to be good, it's going to be pleasing, and it's going to be perfect. I reminded myself of the certainty that we find in Romans chapter 8, 28, and we know that in all things... God works for the good of those who love Him and who have been called according to His purpose. I know that my wife and I love Him. I know that my daughter and our grandkids love Him. Therefore, all things will work according to His purpose. And they're going to be good, pleasing, and perfect. In Proverbs chapter 3, 5, and 6, six when I lay out all my plans, and I think all my plans are all that, <laughs> trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, submit to Him, trust Him, and He will make your paths straight. And as we move through life, each one of us individually, even as a church, Commit all our ways to Him. He is certain. Go to those different truths, those different promises in Scripture, and say, okay, here's what I'm going to stand on this one. Because He never gives up. He doesn't break any of His promises. They are all certain. Wonderful, wonderful, certain promises. Father, thank You for Your truth. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your certainties. Thank You that we can know Satan's biggest, greatest weapon, starting in Genesis, is doubt. Did God really say? Father, as doubts and as worries come to my, our minds, I pray that you would help us to remember to say, Yes, God said, and therefore, I stand victorious in Christ. Father, work in our lives. Help us to walk steadily, with purpose, strongly in your word, and not let anything from the side come in and interrupt. Let your name be glorified in us. In Jesus' name, amen.